Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Todd. I'll be doing our scripture reading for this morning, our pre-text text, as it were. Um, and that text is going to be out of Galatians 6. Um, is it? Is it behind me? Okay. Um, so in Galatians 6, starting in verse 7, says uh, the Apostle Paul says, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Let us not get tired of doing good work, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Todd. Hello again, everyone. Hi, it's good to see you guys again and again. If you turn with me this morning to Habakkuk chapter 2, we'll be picking up in verse 6 where we left off last week, and we'll be um, completing chapter 2 this morning, so settle in. This should only take a few hours. Those in the room are like, ah, surely he's joking. Those who know me are like, it actually could happen. We might, we, we might actually want to settle in. C.S. Lewis said this, good and evil both increase at compound interest. That is why the little decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which a few months later, you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. An apparently trivial indulgence in lust or anger today is the loss of a ridge or railway line or bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack otherwise impossible. The little things, the little decisions matter greatly. I think C.S. Lewis learned this from Jesus himself because we find the same concept in scripture. Jesus in his parable about the dishonest manager taught us this in Luke chapter 16 and verse 10. He says, whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. I think a lot of times, you guys, we think about coming up big in the moment. We think about coming up big when things matter the most. And I used to compare it a lot to the guys on my sports teams that wouldn't show up for practice. You're only going to play as well as you practice. And the little things, the little decisions that we make, the small things that we go through on a week-to-week basis are proving the character and the integrity that we're going to need to make the right decision in moments that are big, maybe even on a larger stage. And I agree with C.S. Lewis in what he said. The little decisions you and I make every day are of infinite importance. Faithfulness to honor Christ in little decisions will lead to honoring Christ in the bigger decisions. And when I would hire employees for the restaurant I used to manage, I remember sitting at a table and interviewing at one point as we opened a new store, we had to interview an entire you know, new crew. And as we were interviewing people, one of the early indicators that I would learn about their character is once they were hired and they had their hours set and their schedule was ready, I would watch for the ones that showed up early. I would watch for the ones that would continue to show up early every single day. And you're like, (laughs) and some are shaking their heads. Oh, man. He knows where I'm going with this. I was looking for shift leaders. 
co-managers, co-leaders, of people that could step up and lead teams of people within the restaurant that I was entrusted with. It may not be that big of a deal to some, but it shows attention and special attention to detail and proactiveness when you have someone who shows up five minutes early for their shift every single shift. It's special. It's different. Those of you who've been in management know exactly what I'm talking about. It's, it's definitely the exception when people are always early or on time. It's a little thing. But it's something when I see faithfulness in that, I believe there will be faithfulness in other areas. And so I watch for that. And I think that it's a little thing that matters to be faithful to. And I think spiritually we understand this when it comes to obedience to Christ. So often we expect to be obedient to him in our hearts and in our minds and in our actions in big moments that are public and in front of people. Yet we've been making compromises all throughout the week. We've been compromising, we've been choosing disobedience when we're alone, when no one's looking. And those little things, those little decisions will either lead to great victories or great failure. I don't want any area of my life, and I pray that you don't either, to a lack of attention to detail. We should long for the attention to detail in our hearts and our lives and awareness that every moment matters, every decision matters. And it's funny because some, some people are like, so I have to always be on when it comes to loving and representing Jesus? Yes, absolutely. We never take a day off from being honoring to Christ in our lives through our actions, our thoughts, everything that we do. So with that thought process in mind, it's an interesting way to segue into what we will call the woe oracles of Habakkuk chapter 2. Because some of these things, if you were going to look at these oracles and you're going to look at what God is now pronouncing over the Chaldeans, over the Babylonians, who he is using to bring judgment to his own people, he's going to pronounce woe over them because they will be judged for the things that they do. God is going to be faithful and he is going to hold them accountable as well, just as he's holding his people accountable through them. But in these woe oracles, you can look at some of these, these subjects and there's five of them. And I think that if we look at, looked at these subjects by themselves without all of the woe and the sorrow and the distress that's being pronounced over it, we might slide right on by them and think they're not that big of a deal. But I want us to make a big deal out of the little decisions. I want us to think very carefully about the small things in life. And I think that this gives us opportunity to do that. There's a warning for all of us in this text because there's a danger that we might see the root of some of these woes as little things in our lives. Yet when it comes to obeying Jesus, there is no such thing as a little decision. There is no such thing as a small decision. Everything we do ought to be done with care. So let's read these. And instead of reading the entirety of the text, I'm going to read them in the section that this woe is pronounced over. So we're going to read them one at a time, and I'm going to invite you to follow along with me, or the verses will also be on the screen as we walk through from verses 6 through 20. We'll begin with the first section, the first woe, which is verses 6 through 8, and it reads this way. And this is God speaking. Won't all of these take up a taunt against him with mockery and riddles about him, and they will say, Woe to him who amasses what is not his. How much longer? And loads himself with goods taken in pledge. Won't your creditors suddenly arise and those who disturb you wake up? Then you will become spoiled for them. Since you have plundered many nations, all the peoples who remain will plunder you. Because of human bloodshed and violence against lands, cities, 
and all who live in them. God speaking begins this first section, building off of what he says prior, encourages the nations reference in verse five to take up this taunt song. In other words, if you look at verse five, it says, moreover, wine betrays an arrogant man is never at rest. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, like death. He is never satisfied. He gathers all the nations to himself. He collects all the peoples for himself. And it's these peoples that God says, now stand up and sing this song. Rise up and sing this song, basically a song of mockery over the Chaldeans. Even though it seems like Babylon is completely unstoppable, even though it seems like the last thing you would want to do is stand up to the power of the known world at that time, the Babylonians, as they're rising to power and taunt them and mock them, God says, here's what you're going to end up saying over them. They're not so unstoppable. They're not all-powerful. God declares woe over the Chaldeans, which is a pronouncement of great distress or sorrow. I almost put a picture of Ted up on the screen up there like, whoa, Bill and Ted, nobody? Oh, you know, I feel more dated every time I talk about like, I used to make pop culture references, but from the 80s in my youth group and the kids would be like, what? The first woe reveals something to us, you guys, and here's what it is. The first woe reveals selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. Look at the text. This is a woe over him who amasses what is not his. Loads himself with goods taken in pledge. In other words, he's taking up a bunch of things and not considering how much money he's spending because he's borrowing it. It's not his in the first place. God reveals that the acquisition of goods by Babylon is not at all like an honest transaction. Rather, it's like someone who's taking out loans with no consideration of having to pay them back one day. You're just taking and taking and taking. You're not thinking about who you're taking it from and that someday those people are going to have a say in the issue. They're going to have a say in it. And what we see inside of this as we think about selfish ambition is that the Babylonians are ambitious for their own gain without thought of who they're plundering or who this world belongs to in the first place. What are you actually taking? Is, does it actually belong to somebody else? Who does everything ultimately belong to? And we must keep that in mind, I think. What's our ambition? What are we trying to achieve day by day? What are we determined to work hard for. Church, I think this is something that we have to address within ourselves before before we can point any fingers at the world. What is it that I am so motivated to acquire that matters so much to me that I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get it? Selfish ambition. It's interesting because Paul talked about his ambition to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5. Verses 9 through 10, he says this, Therefore, whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim, that's ambition, to be pleasing to him. This is my ambition, Paul says. This is what I'm aiming for, I'm striving for. For we must, or we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. All of us are accountable to God. That's what God's saying over the Chaldeans right now as well in Habakkuk, and it still applies to us today. We are still accountable to God for what we have and how we use it. Our ambition, our aim is to take the little things seriously, to be honoring to Christ, always remembering that we will reap what we sow. I remember being amazed when my mom was planting a garden up in Blanchard. 
You just can't say it right. You have to say it, Blanchard. Yes, I lived in Blanchard. It was horrible. But we, we, we were planting this garden. I remember we did all the rototilling and the dirt was just all dried up, riverbed, rock-filled. It's like Post Falls. And uh, people who have tried to plant in Post Falls, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But anyway, we go out there and we're, we get these hills and we rake them all up. And she gives me the seeds. She's like, here, plant these. And I remember the seeds she gave me, I think they were carrot seeds. Are carrot seeds just like microscopic? They're like super tiny. They look like the stuff you get in your Italian sausage, only smaller. <laughs> right? They're those tiny little things. <laughs> it's true. So she gives me these seeds. I remember looking and I was like... I can't even see this. And you put it in, and what do you get? A carrot. It takes forever because this is the Northwest. And so it takes like a 14-year growing season. And so we have, we have, these, we have these, these tiny little seeds, and from them, from the tiniest seedling comes what? Trees, right? So what we're sowing, Scripture teaches us, is so important because it grows into a, either a very big blessing or a really big problem. And that's why I had Todd read Galatians chapter 6 over us to begin our time this morning because it's the little things. It's the planting of seeds in the soil. We think that we have this, this big issue, like, I just got to cut this tree down. It's just, I don't even know how it got here. I, yeah, you do. You know how that tree got there. You know how this big mass of, you know, brush in your yard got there. It started out really small. It started out as something that wasn't that big of a deal. And now it's a really big problem. It's called napweed. Amen. You guys, the passage that we read this morning said this, just two verses from it, from Galatians 6, verses 6, or excuse me, verses 7 and 8, it says this, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a person sows, he will also reap, because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. And it's not about what kind of seeds we're sowing in here on a Sunday morning. It's what we're sowing at home. It's what we're sowing at work. It's about what we're doing in our day-to-day lives. What kind of seeds are you putting in the ground? In all these situations, are we, are we sowing the goodness of God or according to the flesh? See, the Babylonians are being reminded here, and it's going to happen, that they're going to reap what they sow. The nations that they've plundered are going to plunder them. And in Daniel chapter 5, that's exactly what the Medes do to them. They're going to take them without a fight. You can read Daniel chapter 5 for more on that. What are we planting in the ground day by day? Have we taken inventory of our lives in church? Are we in any way like the Chaldeans who are having this woe pronounced over them Because we are filled with selfish ambition. Because the things that we pursue day after day after day are not for the Lord's glory, but we're actually just sowing seeds for our flesh. It's dangerous. And it's in the text. And I, and I go back to this over and over again. Paul's words to Timothy where he says, don't forget the scriptures were written for our instruction. Don't forget that these things were written for us to learn from. These are examples. Don't miss this. As the prophet Habakkuk records the words of God over the Babylonians. 
The second woe is pronounced in verses 9 through 11. Woe to him who dishonestly makes wealth for his house to place his nest on high. I like that. I'm going to start calling my house my nest instead of my crib. If you've ever heard me refer to it as a crib, please just slap me. To escape the grasp of disaster. You've planned shame for your house by wiping out many peoples and sinning against your own self. For the stones will cry out from the wall and the rafters will answer them from the woodwork. The first woe or distress or sorrow is pronounced over selfish ambition. And the second one over the covetousness of the Babylonian nation. They desired wealth for themselves that didn't belong to them and they wanted it for their own security. They see what other people have to covet is to want something that someone else has for yourself and to be willing to do whatever it takes to get it. And that's exactly what the Babylonians have done. And they did it so that they would be secure. I have done this for my great empire. That's right, Anakin Skywalker, folks. You guys, Jesus warned a man in a crowd once. Actually, he warned a lot of men in crowds. But he warned a man in a crowd who asked him to arbitrate between he and his brother regarding his inheritance. It's funny, we we have so many awkward situations in ministry. We're like, that never happened to Jesus. All the time, people just speak up in the middle of his teaching like, hey, can you fix this issue between me and my brother? Out of nowhere. And Jesus says this to him in Luke 12, verses 14 through 15. Again, Jesus goes right to the heart of the issue. Friend, he said to him, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? He then told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed. Because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Oh, you don't think Jesus knew how to cut right to the quick? Guy's like, hey, fix this, this little dispute between my brother and I and our inheritance. And he's like, stop being greedy. Problem solved, <laughs> right? He says, stop being greedy. Be on guard against. He says, your life is not in the abundance of your possessions. Jesus taught that so well to the rich young ruler when he came to him and said, I've kept all the commandments. What else do I need to do? And Jesus said, get rid of everything you've got. Ooh, yeah, that's the one thing I don't want to do. Can I do everything else? You ever notice how Jesus comes into our lives to rule and reign? Did you hear that? He didn't come into your life to be a supplement. He's not a planet that orbits your sun. He is the sun. We orbit around him. He is the center of our universe. And so as the center of our universe, Jesus there existing as God and king and savior, the righteous one says, give me everything you got. And you go, I've given you 99%. Give me 99% of what I got. He says, yeah, the 1% is what I want. You can't let me have this small seed, this tiny little seed, God. It's not that big of a deal. God says, yeah, when it's in the ground, it becomes a really big problem. Give it to me. You realize that when the Lord comes into our lives as Lord and King, that when he asks us for these things, he is not trying to ruin your, your life. Like our kids look at us all the time. Just, just so mean to me. I just can't. <laughs> yes, I want to make you miserable. I looked at my wife lovingly one day and said, wouldn't you love to have a few kids to make miserable together? you guys did that's really sick (laughs) that's really twisted 
You guys, how many of us are so given to what we can do or what we have that we actually gauge ourselves by it? We start to gauge our value based on what we possess. We find security in it. We look and we say, if I had that thing that you don't currently have, I have that, if I had that thing, I would not only be happy, but I would be safe. That's why I have a bunker in my house. Whoops, I said that in North Idaho. Sorry about that. You guys, <laughs> half the church gets up, walks out. This is what I want. This is what I want. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. I don't say this out of need. Paul was talking to the church in Philippi about having physical needs. And he says, I don't say this out of need when he's asking them for help. He says, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I have learned to be content. By the way, what does whatever mean? Any, all, everything, same thing. Whatever it is, he says, I know how to make do with little. And I know how to make do with the law in any and all circumstances. I've learned the secret of being content. And we should be looking at the text going, tell us the secret. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or need, I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me. There's the secret. When Jesus is the center of our universe, when Jesus is our Lord and our King, we can do all things through him because he's strengthening us to do them. You don't get that from any possession. You don't get that from any standing. Anything that we covet, that we desire, that we want to take for ourselves that doesn't belong to us, none of it will give us that contentment. Only Jesus. God has blessed us all so abundantly in Christ's church. He's blessed us to live here with our families in this community. We're not here to take. We receive the good gifts he's given us for his glory. We're here to receive what he's given us and use it for his glory and accept that what he has given is what he has chosen to give in and not make an issue out of it. Covetousness at its core is idolatry. We'll see that in the final and fifth woe later on. Don't worry, we'll get there. Verse 12, the third woe. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with injustice. Is it not from the Lord of armies that the people labor only to fuel the fire and countries exhaust themselves for nothing? Whew. Verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the waters cover the sea. As the water covers the sea, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory someday. Amen? Can't wait for that. Just an overflowing of the knowledge of the glory of God. The third woe being pronounced over here is you look at words like building a city with bloodshed, founding a town with injustice. This is exploitation. This is injustice. Babylon did not care about anyone but themselves. And you're probably noticing this, that the, the woes start to interconnect. They start to connect to each other. This is a pattern. Now, we may look at this as something that's small, so small that we might have even lulled ourselves to sleep, that we haven't even thought about the fact that I only really think about myself all the time. Then I start my day with me and I end my day with a big, big glass of me. 
<laughs> Isn't it interesting though? Saying it like that sounds ridiculous, but like you understand what I'm talking about. You get up thinking about who you are, what you need to do, why you matter, why everyone else should make you happy, comfortable, and peaceful. And you go to bed wondering why no one actually achieved their job. You guys, that's because we have this expectation that people were created to serve us, to do what we want them to do. We think this way in traffic. We think this way in the store. This is my road. This is my cart. Hands off. You guys, this is real life stuff, and we laugh about it, and I joke about it often because I'm just trying to put it in terms that we all get. We all go through this, but it's true. And we need to do something about it. We can't look at other people and think that they are some kind of a tool that's meant to enhance my life. That's not what they're here to do. In fact, Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve. And he says, why don't you do things the way that I've told you to do them? Why don't you come as one who serves? See, Babylon's bringing great distress and sorrow upon themselves by not valuing human life. By not valuing other people and other people's rights. Other people's homes, other people's things, other people's land. They just steamroll right over them. And they'll just build a city, literally in the language, right on top of them. They don't care. They built cities by murdering people. The horrors done by the Chaldeans, by the Assyrians before them, unspeakable. And verse 13 is so sobering. As it says, is it not from the Lord of armies that peoples labor only to fuel the fire? Think about that statement. Is it not from the Lord of armies? I love the way that's, that's phrased as well because it gives this idea of, you realize what kind of a general you're messing with, right? Not only that, he is the one who makes it so that people's labor only to fuel the fire and countries exhaust themselves for nothing. For all their conquering, for all their might, Warren Wearsby said it really well about Babylon. If you want to see what Babylon was like, you have to visit a museum. Now think about that. If you go to a museum and you look at ancient Babylonia and you look at the cities and all the things they built, you'd be like, wow, now that's impressive. Yeah, where is it now? Gone. Completely gone. Because it's the Lord of armies that looks at people who do whatever they wish, whatever they want, and think that whatever they do is going to stand forever and says, you're only laboring to fuel the fire. You're only building something up so that it will burn hotter. And countries exhaust themselves for nothing. The works of human hands will not stand forever, no matter how powerful they look or how indestructible they seem. And it makes me wonder how often I'm laboring for something that just doesn't matter. I'm pouring my time into something that really doesn't have eternal benefit. God has given us lots of things to do on this earth, and I don't want to deface anything that you do for a living. Even when I was the aforementioned restaurant manager. I was faithful to the job God gave me because it was putting food on the table for my family. I was able to minister to young people there. I had one of my shift leaders get saved while he was working for me. God had me there for a reason. 
But here's the difference is, is that just a means to an end or is it an opportunity to do what God has called me to do? Is it an opportunity to have an impact on this world where I am for the glory of God? And it's for the glory of God that we're reminded in verse 14 at the end of this woe about exploitation that there's one ruler that will rule over an indestructible kingdom. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah prophesied of the coming Davidic king in the same way. In Isaiah chapter 11, he's prophesying about Jesus. It's a messianic prophecy. And at the very end of that, in verse 9, he's speaking of the time where Jesus will rule and reign here on this earth. Where little kids can put their hands inside of a hole that has an adder in it and not worry about it. Where the lion will lay down with the lamb. And in verse 9 it says, They will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain. Now think of the passage from Habakkuk and compare it to this one here. For the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. The knowledge and the glory of God will be proclaimed here. This is the kingdom that we proclaim by loving the lost and broken, by caring about justice and the marginalized. And this is the work of the church that cannot be stopped by Satan, no matter how hard he tries. Amen? Jesus, when he was in Caesarea Philippi with Peter, and Peter makes that great confession, you're not a prophet, you're not some dude. That's the paraphrased version. He looks at him and says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God. And Jesus said, my Father revealed that to you. And he says, you're now going to be called Peter, little stone. He says, and on this rock, speaking of himself, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is building his church, 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 church. Jesus is doing this. We are his body. And the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. It doesn't matter what it looks like in this world, no matter how high they're building their cities or how much sin prevails. The gates of hell will not prevent, against, prevent the work of the church from happening in this world because it's Jesus who leads us. Ah, that rhymed a little too much. I didn't mean for that to happen. But it's true. Jesus does lead us. You guys... These oracles matter so much because I think a lot of times we can go to sleep. We can get soft on really every day thinking of our little things that we do as pertaining to the Lord's glory. Sometimes we look at our lives and we feel like what we're doing can't really matter that much in the kingdom. But they're little seeds that grow into great works of God. You never know what he's going to do through the faithfulness of his people in quiet places where no one's watching. In fact, Jesus says that's where you should practice your righteousness is in secret. That's what he taught us in the Sermon on the Mount. The fourth woe. This one gets a little gnarly. Verses 15 through 18. Woe to him who gives his neighbors drink, pouring out your wrath and even making them drunk in order to look at their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace instead of glory. You also drink and expose your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will cover your glory. For your violence against Lebanon will overwhelm you. The destruction of animals will terrify you because of your human bloodshed and violence against lands, cities, and all who live in them. What use is a carved idol after its craftsman carves it? 
It is only a cast image, a teacher of lies. For the one who crafts its shape trusts in it and makes worthless idols that cannot speak. The fourth woe is pronounced over drunkenness and violence. That final verse will pertain to our final and fifth woe in just a minute. Drunkenness and violence, by far the most grotesque picture given to us yet, and very revealing of the culture of the Babylonians. The idea here is that they were giving this drink to the nations around them, making them drunk, and then exposing them so they could wipe them out. It's disgusting. It's sick. And we learn some things about not only the attitude of the Babylonians here, but it's a warning for us as well. There are warnings in this text for us. You guys, the Bible doesn't demand total abstinence, but it does warn against the sin that can come from strong drink. It does warn us about this. And it's interesting how often, not just in history, but currently, that sensuality and sinfulness go together with drunkenness. You know, if you wanted your kids to be in a safe place in the middle of the day, you could take them to the park. If you don't want them to be very safe, let them hang outside of a bar at about 1 p.m. on a Friday night. Why? Because drunkenness leads to sinfulness. Drunkenness in and of itself is sinful. And if you want to see people doing things that they would not normally do, talk to the people who broke our sign out front on the church here with their faces after a drunken night. With their faces. Footage was wonderful. It was funny. When I watched it, it was sent to me. When I watched the footage, I was like, oh, that had to, oh, man. Like, just, like, smashed the glass out of our sign with their faces. Clearly drunk when they did it. And what's funny about drunkenness, not funny, ha-ha, but funny, hmm. What's funny about drunkenness is you pay the price later, right? You know that person woke up the next morning and was like, ah, dude, what in the world was I thinking? I have to get drunk again to get rid of this pain. You guys, we would be foolish to not take the scripture's warning seriously. But I want to caution this as well. Let us not trip into legalism. This is something that we struggle with as a church. Pastors don't like to talk about it. They like to land on either or. Let's just be balanced with this, shall we? Can we be balanced in conversation with this? That we calibrate ourselves in balance, that we prefer godliness and what honors Jesus, that we don't put unbiblical restraint in place, but in the same breath, we don't use our freedom as license to sin? And if you struggle with this, if you struggle with, with drink, if you struggle with strong drink, why don't you just stay away from it then? That's not law. That's choosing to honor God with what I do. That's not putting unnecessary restraints, just saying I want to be honoring to Christ. The Bible doesn't put a restriction on this in the sense that it says it's not allowable to drink, but it does say that drunkenness is a sin. And if you struggle with this, take the necessary action. Take the steps because what you are planting in the ground when you're by yourself is going to grow into something. And what are you putting in the ground? You guys, let's not go into legalism. But let's take the scripture seriously. And let's not use our freedom as license to sin. Let's find balance in this. And there is a balance to be found. And it's something that I think we can look at and talk about and be open about. You guys, the world doesn't understand restraint. The world doesn't understand such restraint. 
There's a strong reminder here that God not only sees what's happening in our world, but will hold those who commit sin accountable for their actions. And he says this, the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will cover your glory. In other words, you think you're getting away with it. You think it's all fun and games now, but this comes back around on you. It will come around and cause harm and destruction in your life as they drunkenly are doing this to nations around them. And it's not just in the drinking and then the partying and the violence, but the violence that he calls out is interesting. I don't know if you notice this in the text. It's worth noting that God holds Babylon accountable for their abuse of his creation, both lands and animals. He holds them accountable for their abuse of his creation. He talked about people already, but he even gets down to like what you're doing to this world and to the animals that are on this world. He says, this matters, and it's, it shouldn't be shocking to us because in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. That was our first job. Our first job that God commissioned us with was to care for this world, to care for the land, to care for the animals, to be kind and thoughtful. You guys, humans are entrusted with the task of caring for the earth God created and everything that he placed in it. When we, we, we forsake that, we abuse the world that he loves. We abuse the creatures that he created. When we care too much for this world, so much so that we live our lives for this world or anything in it, we've gone from one extreme to the other and we've become idolatrous. Yet again, balance is brought into view. Balanced in drinking, of not being drunk, not being legalists. And then we have balance when it comes to loving this world and caring for this world, but not becoming worshipers of it, idolatrous of it. How many of you know people that are idolatrous to their property or their things, to their animals, their lands? I'm not trying to like, condemn anyone here there's no condemnation in christ but i hope to convict every single one of us because i'm convicted by this what do we love more do we love jesus the most or do we love the things that he made to love anything that he made in his place is idolatry interestingly enough that thought is exactly where he goes he talks about this this riotous living if you will this violence and drunkenness and then he gets into idolatry in verse 17 or verse 18 he says what use is a carved idol after its craftsman carves it he says you've even taken these things and you worship them it's only a cast image a teacher of lies for the one who crafts its shape trusts in it and makes worthless idols that cannot speak how much saving can an idol that can't even talk do he continues that thought process into the fifth woe. This is the final one. Woe to him who says to wood, wake up. Or to mute stone, come alive. Can it teach? Look, it may be plated with gold and silver, yet there's no breath in it at all. Do you like that matter of fact statement? Look, this pew has cloth on it, but it can't say a word. But the Lord is... Oh, this is so powerful. Don't miss verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple alive. Let the whole earth be silent in his presence. Let the whole earth be silent in the presence of our living God. The one who is holy. Woe number five. Sorrow and distress over idolatry. 
over idolatry. G.K. Beale said it so well, what you revere, you resemble either for ruin or for restoration. God has made humans to reflect him. But if they do not commit themselves to him, they will not reflect him, but something else in creation. At the core of our beings, we are imaging creatures. At the core of our beings, we are image bearers. It's almost like God created us to be that way. Now do we fully understand at the end of the five woe oracles just how serious it is to have idols. Let me read Psalm 115 verses 1 through 9 for you because this reveals that exact truth from G.K. Beale in a deeper way. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your faithful love, because of your truth. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven and does whatever he pleases. I love that verse. It's a good one to memorize. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, cannot make a sound with their throats. Those who make them, notice this, are just like them, as are all who trust in them. Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. There's something very, very important about that passage in Psalm 115. Especially when you look at Isaiah 6. And when God commissions Isaiah, he says, Go to a people who having eyes cannot see. Having ears cannot hear. What is he saying about the nation of Israel? They're idolatrous. They're idol worshipers. They've become like what they worship. You guys, our little idols that we worship, the little things that are vying for the affection of our hearts, we must keep Christ at the center. We must keep Christ at the center because if we don't, we become like what we're worshiping, dead. Dead and lifeless, unable to save. You guys, Jesus at the center of our universe saves us. We become him. We are conformed into his image rather than being conformed to the image of the world. That's why Paul said, don't be conformed to the world or let the world press you into its mold. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He goes on later and says, be conformed into the image of Christ. Become who you worship, and that is Jesus. This came to mind as we're closing here. I'll have the worship team come on up. As I was thinking about idolatry and as I was thinking about um, the little things that we do in our day-to-day lives, let me present a scenario for you. And you guys are going to love this because it's steeped in reality. If aliens came to earth, I love that. I love that segue. And they were attempting to discern whom or what we worship just by observing us, just by watching us. Not by coming to our church services alone, but looking at every aspect of our lives, what conclusion would they come to? If 
some creature that could understand and think for itself and discern for itself came into my life randomly and just watched me go about my life for a couple of months or even a year, what or whom would that creature say I worship? Or was my God that I served? I hope that every single one of you feels at least a smidgen of the conviction I felt as I thought about this this week. Because it made me tremble a little bit. Is my life so blatantly sold out for Christ that they would look and say, for sure, this one right here serves the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other God. There is no other for this person here. You guys, if that strikes us for a minute, if we start thinking about our week, we start thinking about our lives, this is our opportunity to confess to the Lord and say, please adjust my life. Please calibrate me. I don't want to be an idol worshiper. Albert Schweitzer said, anything you have that you cannot give away, you do not really own. It owns you. I'll read that again. Anything you have that you cannot give away, you do not really own. It owns you. It's convicting stuff. Because there's lots of good things that God has given to us that we have turned into idols by making those things ultimate. Make Jesus ultimate. Here's the thing that I want to challenge you guys with this morning. Last week, I sent you all home to take a nap. Do you guys remember that? You're like, oh, what a terrible week to miss church. Because we talked about rest. But you guys, this week, this is what I would like to ask us to do. Can we go home this afternoon and just do a little examination? Just ask the Lord to examine me. Psalm 139. It's not on the slide, guys. I apologize. I'm off script. That means we have at least another hour. Psalm 139. I'm kidding. I'm almost there. David writes this. Verses 23 and 24. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there's any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. Church, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Just an encouragement to go home and pray that prayer. Lord, would you search me and know my heart? I want you to know my thoughts. I want you to see if there's any offensive way in me, and I want you to lead me in the everlasting way. Let's just be really honest with the Lord today and every day thereafter because the Lord is in His holy temple. And maybe this afternoon we can apply this verse directly and just say, I want to go home and I want to be silent in his presence. I want to go home and I want to just sit in silence in his presence for the God who is sovereign and all-powerful. Lord, I want to sit in your presence and I want you to search me because he loves every single one of us. For those in Christ, his spirit lives in you. Let's examine really search whether we're walking in obedience to his word or not and remember that when you confess your sin he's faithful and just he'll forgive you he'll cleanse you of all unrighteousness god isn't holding out on you he wants to draw you near and he is not only sovereign but he loves his creation and he loves us lord thank you for this time in your word
Thank you for a reminder through these woes over the Babylonians, Lord, that we need to take inventory of our lives. We need to look at these things. And I've been so convicted, Lord, over the idols, the good things that you've put in my life that I've made ultimate. And so, God, I confess that, Lord, I have not lived a life that it was a, if it was observed from the outside, from an outsider who never knew me, to assess who I truly love the most. Lord, I'm so convicted to think of the times where they would have had a whole number of things to suggest before you. Jesus, that doesn't mean I don't love you. It just means I've given into my flesh again. I've loved my sin more than I've loved you. And Lord, I just confess that. Lord, I repent of it. Lord, if this prayer is applying to anyone else in this room right now, would you just remind us not only in conviction, Lord, of your goodness, but would you remind us that you, Jesus, that you've opened the doors for us to come boldly into the throne room of grace to seek for mercy and help in our time of need. And here we are, your people, in great need. And Lord, we are in distress in many ways. And so we just come to you and we say, Lord, would you cleanse us? Would you begin the good work in this city, in our county, within the hearts of our church? Through confession and repentance, would you bring restoration to your people? Lord, would you give us the ability to honestly look at our lives and assess what needs to go? Lord, that we would cast down the idols that we would willingly remove sin. Again, Lord, not to put legalism into play, but to choose you over everything else, that we would have no vices. It would be Jesus and Jesus alone. Lord, minister to us as we sing, as we worship you. I pray that this would stir us to response. We ask it in your name.